Hello, and welcome to Rock Paper Saws, the historical action and adventure podcast. My name is Matthew Harfi. My name is Stephen A. McKay. We're both best-selling historical fiction authors, and together we chat about all things historical and anything that could fall under the banner of action and adventure in books, film, TV, and games. Oh, and we also talk about rock music from time to time. Cue the music! is the author of the Twilight of Empire series, six historical novels set in the early 4th century AD, the era of the Roman Emperor Constantine. The first of the series, War at the Edge of the World, was published in the UK in 2015, and the sixth and final book in that series was Triumph in Dust in 2019. His books have subsequently been published in the USA, Australia, Spain and Italy. His forthcoming novel, Battle Song, the first of a trilogy set in medieval England, will be published by Hodder and Stoughton on March the 30th, 2023. Welcome to Rock, Paper, Swords, Ian Ross. Hello, Ian. Hello, hello. Good to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. Yes. And... It's, a, it's a great honour. Yes, I was just saying to, uh, to Stephen, actually, I've listened to a few of your uh, your shows before, so it's very peculiar now kind of actually being on it. I feel like I'm talking back to a podcast, which is a very strange sensation. <laughs> <laughs> we're stars, Matthew. We're, we're, we're stars, yeah. We're actually not real people. We are AIs. Well, that will be soon. We will be replaced be by soon. AI soon. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, probably. And that's that's probably a whole other conversation. But um, <laughs> just before Christmas, I did I did play around with OpenAI, the the chat GPT thing, and um, oh, yeah. typed in and said, "Could you write a scene in the style of Matthew Harfey?" And it did a bloody good job. I was at the pub with some <laughs> mates, and I showed them, and they were like, oh, "That's better than what you write." <laughs> and it was right. Yeah, it was all stuff. It was, it was using old English names for the characters and all sorts. It was amazing. It was uh, quite scary, bizarre. isn't it? I like to think that these things will just inspire us to write better novels, ultimately, you know, and, and everyone to just write better, because if you can get this AI that will do your writing, that will that will write sort of like very bog standard stuff, then yeah. hopefully everyone who, who commissions writing will just go, right, we have to get better writers in, and we'll have to just get writers who can do better than a computer. Real ones. Yeah, well, I think, I think yeah. that's actually, it's definitely making me write faster. I'm thinking, <laughs> I've just got to write more quickly before the AI <laughs> takes over. That's right, I've got six more novels before it's all over, yeah. <laughs> that's it, yeah. But um, talking about great writing, um, I have actually read your new novel, Battle Song, right. and I have to say it was fantastic. I was saying to Stephen the other day, um, in preparation for this, we were sort of preparing the questions, and I said it's one of the best books I read last year. Best wow. book I read in the second half of the year. Is, I mean, I've got terrible memory, so I can't even remember what else I read. But it absolutely stood head and shoulders above um, the other books that I read around, you know, the, the second half of the year. So, can you tell us a bit about the upcoming um, novel, Battle Song? Yeah, well, um, thanks very much for, uh, for for your praise. I mean, I've been. Uh, really quite sort of taken aback and quite humbled by the reactions that I've been having to it so far. I mean, it it's, uh, comes out on 30th of March, so depending on when this uh, this podcast goes out, it may not have been published yet. Um, but, uh, you know, a few people have seen it already. It's gone out to 
quite a few kind of other authors to get cover quotes and things like that. And and the reaction's been just overwhelmingly positive, which uh, I was I, I mean I was surprised by really, um, and and just very very pleased because why why were you surprised well, because i mean i've read your some of your roman ones the audible versions and i think you're a good writer is a really good writer a great writer and when i posted yeah. on facebook about it a lot of my own readers said the same thing so i don't know why you'd be surprised because you are a really good writer well thanks i mean i was surprised because um I, i've changed publishers with this one um i've, I've changed from head of zeus over to, to hodder and stout and i was actually changing publishers uh just when the the pandemic got started which is you know if you ever want to change publishers don't do it when a global pandemic has just kicked off uh so i mean maybe that's why because the publishing industry was just in a real kind of state of chaos and confusion at the time but uh, i was sending this um, or my agent was sending this novel around and it actually got turned down by quite a lot of places uh, right, there's, no, there's, right. no, there's no market for historical fiction at the moment. Uh, nobody wants to read <laughs> about medieval stuff. You know, oh, I'm not sure about this. And um, I was very lucky to be taken on in the end by a, a young, a new editor at, uh, at Otter who's really got behind it. But uh, I mean, so possibly because of that, I was I was sort of thinking that it was just going to go out rather quietly and everyone was going to kind of go, oh, well, you know, here's another historical fiction thing. Uh, so it's been it's been great really getting the responses that I've had from so many, so many people, sort of really big names as well, and really sort of writers that I respect. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's kind of, I don't know, restored my, my faith in, wasn't my faith in my own writing, but my faith in, in sort of reading, really, because I think there's, the publishing industry is one thing, and it's a very peculiar thing, and it's filled with, uh, there's an awful lot of people out there sort of trying to pretend they know what's going on, and not really, uh, well, as William Goldman says, uh, nobody knows anything. It's, th- it's true for, for publishing as it is for, for the movie business. Um, but then you get readers, uh, and readers are a different matter. Readers are what matters. Uh, they're yeah, they're yeah. the important thing. So, so, yeah, getting this first sort of initial feedback from real people who've actually read it um, and it being so positive is great. But, um, yeah, to go back to your question, sorry, um, the book Battle Song is set in the mid-13th century, uh, the, the 1260s in England, and it's the background of the book is what's called the Second Barons' War. So this is uh, period. The 13th century in England was generally quite peaceful. Um, there were not a lot of war- wars in England itself. They kind of exported their their wars to other places, Wales and Scotland and France and things. Um, but uh, England itself, there wasn't a great deal of, of actual open warfare, which is what makes this sudden explosion of violence in in the 1260s, late 1250s and 1260s, all the more unusual because you get this great sort of growing swell of opposition to Henry III, who was the king at the time, uh, from his his barons who wanted him basically to respect the terms of uh, Magna Carta, which had been drafted back in sort of the early early uh, early 13th century, 1215. Um, and that just broke out into, into open warfare, um, finally in 1264, after a lot of kind of proxy warfare beforehand. And you suddenly got these this string of uh, huge battles. There was the Battle of Lewis in 1264 itself, then the Battle of Evesham the following year. And then the year after that, you had this uh, ongoing warfare, which culminated in uh, the Siege of Kenilworth, which was the biggest siege in, in English history, really, or the, the most sort of consequential siege. So this is a, a, a really dramatic uh, background for the story. And of course, what's happening is it's a civil war. Uh, it's a civil war in England between the barons and the king. And civil wars are uh, terrible to live through and they have terrible social consequences. They're greatly destructive. But in terms of novel writing, they're fantastic because people have to choose which side they're on. They have to choose who they're going to fight for. 
and those choices can be uh, you know matters of life or death and that's that's great for, for a novel because novels are all about characters who have to make decisions and those decisions involve jeopardy so if you've got a decision where there's there's a war going on you have to fight for one side or the other that's great character building stuff that really kind of throws the whole story into much greater focus so the baron's war is the background to the story and it's motivated or driven by this character called Simon de Montfort, who was a French aristocrat who became the sort of figurehead or champion of the baronial opposition to Henry III. And he's a very controversial figure, a larger than life figure, definitely one of the big personalities of the 13th century or English medieval history generally. But uh, what I've tried to do with this book is what I also tried to do with, with the, the previous books, really, the, the Twilight of Empire Roman ones, is to have this big historical panorama forming the background with all of these you know, great battles and dramatic scenes going on and these big real historical figures. But then in the foreground to put these other characters, these fictional characters who are experiencing this historical moment and these historical episodes and being influenced by it and being swept along by, by the tide of this, uh, this, this great drama that's surrounding them. But at the same time, they have their own individual stories, their own individual dilemmas. Uh, that they have to work through. So in the, the Roman books that I wrote, the Twilight of Empire stories, my protagonist was uh, a Roman centurion called Aurelius Castus, who uh, rises up through the Roman army uh, over the course of these six books. And his uh, story is really influenced by the, the rise of the Emperor Constantine, um, who kind of comes from, well, not exactly nothing, but he comes from, from the background right into the forefront of Roman history and transforms the Roman Empire. So it turns it into a into a Christian empire, really, um, and wins a civil war and uh, a tremendous series of battles that he goes on to fight. So in this book, I actually found that Simon de Montfort was playing a very similar role to the Emperor Constantine in, in the Roman books. He's this big, morally ambiguous, complex figure, ruthless, ambitious, um, tremendously charismatic, kind of bending history to his, to his will, really. Quite a difficult person. Um, and but uh, the novel itself is focused on this other character, uh, and he is in uh, battle song uh, Adam de Mon Adam de Norton, sorry, <laughs> and he's a he's a young squire who starts out uh, as an eighteen year old in the household of uh, an aristocrat, the Earl of Hereford, and so he's a kind of very very lowly figure at the beginning, a very humble figure. He doesn't really have any um, influence over the historical. Uh, drama that's going on around him um, and he is um, I mean kind of in, intentionally I had him as, as a, a quite an unimportant figure a very young man um, barely out of youth uh, still trying to make his mark in the world really sort of obsessed with stories of chivalry and the idea of knighthood and really wanting to to become a knight and to reclaim his ancestral birthright which he feels has been taken from him unjustly um, so the story really is about him and his relationship with an older knight, uh, a very cynical veteran warrior, or Robert de Dunstanville. Um, and Adam de Norton is taken on as the squire of Robert de Dunstanville after a, a sort of a, a sequence of um, violent events uh, at, the, at the very beginning of the novel, which eject Adam from this life that he's known and send him off on the road with this uh, older knight who initially he distrusts immensely and uh, really dislikes quite intensely as well. He, he regards him as a sort of 
I mean, he's been told that his that this Robert de Dunstanville is the devil's knight. He's this sort of slightly demonic, very amoral figure who's going to lead him into, into terrible trouble, which, of course, is a great way to, to start off a novel, I hope. Um, because what happens is uh, Robert de Dunstanville takes him away to, to France initially because he is a, a landless knight. His lands have been taken from him. So he makes his living on the tournament circuit, uh, traveling around these, these massive tournaments, which take place all over France and the Holy Roman Empire and Spain. Tournaments were actually legal in England at the time. Uh, Henry III really just liked them um, and tried to ban them whenever possible. So they have to go to France and they travel around this, this tournament circuit for about two years. And over the course of this period, Adam de Norton kind of realizes that uh, this Robert de Dunstanville, rather than being a kind of... Um, a sort of uh, a terrible uh, sort of disgrace to the name of knighthood is actually a very effective and strangely honorable figure. Um, he comes to respect him and he comes to sort of um, treat him as a kind of mentor. Um, so you don't, you don't want to give too, you don't give too much away here, Ian. No, no, I'm not, like not going to tell you're gonna, you're gonna tell the whole story <laughs> yeah. at this rate. Yeah, but uh, needless to say, they they uh, they learn a lot on this on this tournament circuit, and then but eventually they have to return to England because this uh, this great conflict is breaking out between Saint de Montfort and the, the king, and they have to choose sides in this in this yeah. war um, based on what they believe to be their best interests at the time. Yeah, I I so really liked. Like as I said, I really enjoyed it, but I really liked the characters. It's the, um, the the sort of the classic hero's journey against this backdrop of of great upheaval. Um, the authenticity in it it feels incredibly real. Um, I think one of the biggest problems with historical fiction is that sometimes it feels like a an adventure story that could be set anytime, any place. It's almost like fantasy. They 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 throw in a few names of places, or whatever, and that's it. Um, but this just feels really authentic. Um, it felt very believable. People's the way people think, the way people respond to each other, the casual violence that there is in all sorts of um, moments. That I, I really loved that, and I've, I thought the fact that this main character, the 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 young squire Adam, is Adam, isn't it? Um, mm, yeah. He he's um, he's not a he, you know he's not heroic. He's 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 growing into this heroic character but he has to face you know dilemmas and uh, and even physically he struggles you know in, in combat sometimes and he's not this sort of you know guy that just you know can do everything right from the from the off and it, it's really really good really great book yeah I'm, I'm glad you thought that i mean the uh the character of adam was really almost a kind of conscious um reaction to where i'd got to with the last of the roman books um twilight of empire which was um set in the, the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire. But by that point, my character, Aurelius Castus, was 61 years old. Um, and he was a kind of one of the senior generals of the Roman army. And he was this tremendous veteran with, with enormous reserves of sort of strength and, and uh, cunning and uh, resilience and everything else. So I really wanted to kind of to go somewhere different with this new book. So I deliberately chose this character who was kind of a little bit naive, rather clumsy, um, initially, at least, um, not really sure what he's supposed to be doing in life, uh, not very mm -hmm. trusting of himself, who has this this mentor figure who can kind of pull him along and, and show him the ropes and show him the way the world should be, who he can then react against in time. Um, so, yeah, it was a it was a conscious yeah. bit of yeah, character building. That. Yeah, I'm glad it worked. And it really did. It really did work. And um I just think, just going back to your thing of saying that you got rejected, you know, right back at the beginning of the conversation, you said you got rejected, mm -hmm. uh, this book got rejected a lot. I just think that's, 
it, just for anyone listening that's uh, that's that's written a novel and is trying to sell it um, and hasn't had anything published, you know, this is a guy who's had six novels published. Um, very good. You're a very good writer. I mean, as, as Stephen said, you know, your, your books are great. So everyone goes through this thing of being rejected, and it just shows that the industry really has no idea what they're doing. They will reject, and, and there's no there's no proof that this is going to sell fantastically well or or not. It's all very up in the air. You, we we don't really know how each book is going to. Um, be received even when it's being received now by people saying it's really well written and it's really great and it is who knows what the future's going to yeah, hold for it, but the fact that you they just can't, can't tell can they yeah i was told exactly the same as you ian uh with my debut novel that there was just no market for it and i ended up having to self-publish and then again with my current series the druid series it was the exact same thing again sorry there's no market for this mm. and i self-published it and i mean this is my living now you know, yeah. So there obviously is a market selling enough that I can live off the proceeds. So it's uh, disheartening to be told by an agent or a publisher there's no market for this, but they could very well be wrong. And as you say, the readers are all that matters. People yeah, buy yeah. it and they enjoy it and then they leave reviews and that's all that matters in the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, well, I'm quite used to it. I mean, I um, I started writing back in, in my early 20s, uh, when I kind of figured out that you might potentially be able to make a living out of it, I just thought, well, that's great. That's what I'm going to do then. Um, and I spent the next 12 years really just writing novel after novel, trying to trying to break through. And most of the early ones that were in historical fiction, I was just trying to, trying to find the kind of thing I wanted to write really um, and kind of teaching myself to do it as well. Uh, but I had a you know rejection after rejection. I was just sending the stuff out and getting it getting it straight back again. So I'm very very familiar, unfortunately, with this uh, this this situation. I mean, I think there's probably a certain point where um, where you can kind of do no wrong as a as an author and, and uh, publishers will just snap up whatever you do. But I'm certainly yeah. not there yet. I don't know who is really. Um, <laughs> I don't think any of us are. Yeah, well, TK <laughs> Rowling or something like that. Well, but... yeah, maybe, maybe I don't know. I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe you guys are. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know what your your relationships with your publishers are, but uh, yeah, I mean, you always we always hope that the next thing you do is going to be the thing that kind of finally catches people's attention and, and becomes, you know, the the sort of the making of you. And I I, I have high hopes for this book, uh, you know, particularly because of the reactions I've had from it so far. And and I've I've just loved immersing myself in something totally new. I mean, after. Uh, six books in in the Roman world, and I was kind of on the verge of starting a new Roman one as well. Just after that, um, I sort of really enjoyed being able to throw myself into some totally different scenes and just uh, really go to town on on the research as well. Because I, I love research, I love doing all that yeah. sort of you know really really detailed background reading, and just being able to to have an entirely new era that I could throw myself into and find out absolutely everything, <laughs> everything I could about every little minute aspect of it and, and kind of have this, this trilogy of books, which I've been signed up to write, that I could then just explore all of that stuff. I can explore the whole world of the 13th century in England, um, which is, I think, really for me, the most exciting part of writing. Um, actually, I think I prefer the research and the planning part of, of writing to actually writing the books. By the time I actually get to writing the books, it almost feels like I'm closing doors. You know, I'm standing in this fantastic mansion of research filled with these wonderful rooms filled with, with books and papers and stuff I can write about. And I have to go around kind of closing the doors and saying, no, actually, I don't need all of this stuff. 
I don't need all of this stuff about, you know, manorial courts and, and monastic laundries and stuff. That can't get into the story. You've got to get rid of all that. And re you're really sort of, you know, narrowing it down to the stuff that's actually about the character and the story. But it really shows that you've done all that background reading. And again, this is, you know, I'd say to any historical fiction author who, or someone who's aspiring to become a historical fiction author that might be listening, um, that we often talk about, you know, knowing how much research to put into a book. And th this was the same for your Roman books. I, re I, I read the first of your Roman series and the last one. I haven't read all the ones in the middle, so I'm, I've, I've not got around to, you know, I can never read as much sure. as I'd like. Well, I can but I've see read how many books your... you've got behind you on your shelves there, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> well, well, I've read, so I've read three of your novels and I can say, you know, I could see that definitely by the, by the sixth one in the series, I can't remember so much the first one, but the sixth one, um, your research was fantastic. And again, it just oozes out that you know it rather than you having to sort of belabor the point that you know it, you know, and I think mm -hmm. that's what um, really makes historical fiction shine is when it feels lived in. And I remember for both books, I kind of had the same feeling and the same sort of comment, which was it feels like you're time traveling reading it. It feel mm -hmm. I, I really reading it. I feel like I feel that you have gone back in time somehow and you sort of watch this and then you're kind of recounting it to me and oh that's fantastic that's, that's brilliant history no, no, that's that's i mean that's really good to hear because that's the way i think about it as well um i mean i i think when i first started writing actually i wanted to write travel books that was my my initial um idea that i would sort of be like uh, uh colin Fubron or bruce chapman or something write these these books about going to distant places but i had no money at the time so i couldn't go anywhere um, and by the time I had the money to go places, I realized that probably all the places I wanted to write about people had already gone there. And, you know, Colin Thubron and Bruce Chapman had written books about it. So I kind of got this idea that if I wrote about the past, it would be like sort of traveling in the past. And you could, could take readers on this on this journey and, and take them around these kind of scenes that I'd, I'd read about and imagined. Um, and so that's really still the way that I think about writing and the way that I think about books. So you know, when people respond like that and they tell me that that's the, 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 the feeling that they're getting from what I'm writing, then that's that's great. That's perfect. You've actually answered our, our next two questions because ah. that was oh. <laughs> the research and the, the change from the Roman era. But uh, Angus Donald had kind of famously or infamously said um, he'd come up with this acronym JAFRA. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Just another, yeah, yeah, yeah. another uh, flipping yeah. Roman author. So uh -huh. <laughs> you are no longer uh, a member um, of Jaffa. No, I, I don't know if there's some, yeah, some other acronym about medieval people. No, I, I was introduced <laughs> to that right at the beginning. Because, um, I mean, there were there were a lot of people who were writing books about Romans at one point. And I was kind of, I think I was right at the end of a, of a wave of Roman uh, fiction writing. I mean, it's quite weird because it began in, I think, 2008. Uh, with Ben Kane and Harry Sidebottom, and there was Amanda Scott, and then there was uh, Douglas Jackson and uh, some other people as well. And it sort of it lasted for sort of about four years or so. And my first book came out in 2015, so I was right at the end of that wave. And also, I was writing about the late Roman Empire, so it was a kind of slightly different uh, mm -hmm. setting to what they know. But um, it was kind of odd because I was thinking, and, and I've met quite a lot of these authors subsequently and, and chatted to them and stuff. And I think a lot of people were originally inspired by Gladiator back in 2001, and then by the HBO BBC Rome series in sort of mm -hmm. 2003, four. But it took yeah. them a few years to get around to actually starting to write books about it. And also, of course, it took the publishing world a few years to realize that people were now interested in this stuff and could potentially want to read quite a lot of novels about it. So you suddenly got this wave of people who were all writing these kind of lengthy serial novels about the Roman army in particular around 2008. 
so yeah, I came in on the back of all that. But um, I mean, talking about the the change of of style or the change of period, rather, it was kind of inspired in a way by a couple of other novels that I read around the time I was writing my first book, War at the Edge of the World, or around the time that that came out. Um, I mean, I'd always been interested in the medieval world anyway. I'd always loved sort of knights and castles and all that kind of thing, as as a lot of people do. Yeah. You know, most of my childhood holidays were going around, you know, one ruin after another and, you know, clambering up and down the battlements and stuff. But um, I remember when I was writing that first book, I read, first of all, um, a book by Robert Lowe. Um, it's called The Lion Wakes. Um, it's the first of his trilogy that he wrote about... Um, Sort of Robert the Bruce and stuff like that. But again, uh, the same way that I was just saying about my own work, he was using that as the backdrop and then having this fictional character in, in the foreground. Um, and I read the first of those and I was really struck by how fresh and vivid it seemed. Have you read those, Stephen? I'll be honest, I did start reading the first one, but... Um, <laughs> on a, a lot of people were, ter- were, were, were turned off by them, I think. Well, I'm Scottish. And yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't really understand <laughs> the dialogue. Yeah. That's the because you've written these the Viking books before. But yeah, a lot of these. I, I, um, I did enjoy his Viking books. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's called the the Kingdom Trilogy, and uh, yeah. um, I think a lot of people reading reviews and things on on Amazon. A lot of people really didn't like that he was using a lot of I think it's Lowland Scots dialect. Yeah, I couldn't understand speaking. it. Yeah, well, it is quite difficult, and he's got quite a difficult way of writing as well. I really yes, very... I, I reread one of them. He's very not. Um, you know, because we're accustomed to quite sort of writing that doesn't really declare itself. And I think that's the way that we tend to write ourselves. You know, you don't want to have people going, oh, my goodness, what a well-turned phrase. Uh, but he kind of has this odd way of of constructing sentences. Yeah, it really takes does. a bit of getting used to. Yep. Uh, and it really comes out in those books. But I, I really love them, actually. I mean, I could, I could kind of see why people would find them tricky. But that first book, The Line Wakes and The Line at Bay, I think the second one, um, I was just thinking, this this is showing me a, a, a very weird world that I'm quite into, um, and I'm, I'm it's it's sparking my imagination. But obviously, at the time I was writing about Romans, so I, I sort of thought, okay. But then after that, I read um, the the Winter Pilgrims by Toby Clements. Uh, again, the first book of a, of a four books, I think. Yeah. set in the time I, of the war. I found those. I mentioned those just the other day in another another interview. I was being interviewed by someone, okay. and, and I said they were hugely inspirational to me, um, mm. not in the time period, but in the style of writing. And um, they're yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're, they're wonderful books. I mean, I, I reread the whole the whole four books recently and enjoyed them even more actually. But uh, just the way that he was, and he would again, he was doing the same kind of thing. He had this big panorama of the War of the Roses going on in the background, and all these sort of kings and princes and. and Sort of, you know, wannabe kings and princes, and then in the foreground, he's got his his protagonists, who are a renegade monk and a nun, kind of on the run um, across medieval England. But just the sort of the sense of reality that he managed to to conjure yeah. up, the sense of this very cold, rather gritty environment, and the kind of stale bread and mud underfoot and scratchy clothing, and sort of all this kind of thing, is just evoked so powerfully. And I was really struck by that one. Um, and in combination with the with the Robert Lowe book as well, um, I just got this idea in my head that I wanted to write about the Middle Ages. And as I was going through my my Roman series and kind of coming to the end, I was thinking, well, where am I going to go after this? And I thought, I have to go to the Middle Ages. I have to go to the 13th century. And by that point, I'd already done quite a bit of reading on the subject and I'd come across the Barons' War and I'd come across Simon de Montfort and recognised in him one of these big, powerful kind of historical driving figures that I could use to propel the book uh, from the from the background and then have this 
foreground character interacting with what was going on. So, um, so yeah, by, by that point, the, the story was already there and the setting was already there. And all I had to do was have all the fun of researching it and planning it. <laughs> well, I, it paid off. I really hope the book does does well because it's, you know, it's, it's, but I know you've got, you've got the contract for the three books, I think, haven't mm, you, for yeah, the, the, yeah. the trilogy. So, yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I finished the second one now. Um, I finished the second one um, sort of last, uh, last autumn. It's called uh, Leopard's Malice. Well, that's the, uh, that's the working title anyway. And I'm just starting the third one now, um, which is, uh, again, hopefully quite different. I think, uh, you know, each book in the trilogy, I would hope kind of moves the story on and moves the characters on, but also deals with kind of different aspects of the scene. So is each one going to culminate in these three battles that you mentioned before? Because without giving too much away, the Battle yeah. of Lewis features well, in yeah. the, the first yes. book. It's not too much of a spoiler that, that you know, history happened. Yeah. You know? um, so, yeah, the, the first <laughs> book sort of ends with the Battle of Lewis. Uh, the second book, um, yeah, well, it ends with the Battle of, of Evesham. Um, the third book is a little more varied because the, there wasn't um, like a big uh, climactic battle then. It was more like a sort of a succession of things going on. Um, so mm. I think of the third one like a sort of outlaw road movie. Um, you know, they're, they're sort of they're on the road around England. There's all kinds of things going on. There are battles and skirmishes and sieges that's, and trails. So yeah, that's very much like the um, the Winter Pilgrims sort of yeah, storyline, yeah. isn't mm. it? We're, we're not not the copy of that, but that that sort of style of the traveling around and things happening. Yeah, that's what I like. Well, I always really um, works, yeah. yeah, I always like to have lots of uh, journeys in in uh, in what I'm writing. And maybe this is because I wanted to write travel books originally. But um, <laughs> yeah. everything that I've written has always involved people traveling around. I remember my um, my first editor at uh, at head of Zeus really didn't like all of this traveling that I had going on in these in these novels and she was constantly saying look nobody wants to read an entire chapter of people you know traveling from one place to the other place and where they made camp and how they got across this river and what they were having for breakfast I thought oh, I do that's the kind of thing well I it's like. really funny because it's, I'm listening listening to the audiobook of Lonesome Dove at the moment mm. which is one of my favorite um books Larry McMurtry um Pulitzer Prize winning novel massive book and um, if you haven't read it, it you mm. definitely should. I'll have to listen to this, Matthew. It's all about travelling. You mentioned um, it almost but, every episode. I'm going to have the to whole hear thing. It. The whole thing is, it's honestly, it's so good. Every day I'm listening to it. It's like it's about a thousand pages long. So the audiobook is so long. That's why yeah. I'm that's why I'm mentioning it all the time. Mm. Um, it's taken me ages to get through it, but it is just so good. And lots of it is about the travelling. I was just thinking today about how good, it, how how well Larry McMurtry describes the travelling mm. and how it brings to life this sort of this relentless pace of just slowly trudging across the whole of America. I mean, they travel from Texas right the way to Montana and it just takes them, you know, literally months, you know, it's just, yeah. and it's, and it's about going across rivers and what happens along the way and all the different things. And it's just, well, brilliant. I mean, this is one of the, I mean, I don't know if it, if this counts as one of the seven basic plots or whatever it's supposed to be, but it's surely one of the the first kind of quintessential stories, you know, how we got from here to there. I was thinking this is the, one of the attractions of the Lord of the Rings is it's basically one big travel saga yeah. of people yeah, kind of yeah. crossing vast distances and, and encountering and encountering different people and places yeah exactly exactly yeah. Yeah. i mean I, I love that kind of stuff i mean uh any anything that involves a, a a journey i mean this is you know one of the biggest uh sort of research rabbit holes i go down is is um trying to research any journey in great detail it's like there's something in my mind that immediately trips whenever i think somebody has to go somewhere I'm like right, okay, and I'm on Google Maps, and I've got the the measuring tool, you know, so you can oh, yeah, plot we, out we all do exactly that, yeah. how far everybody goes, where they go, the bridges they cross, the rivers they get to, the towns they get to, um, and I love that kind of stuff, you know, measuring exactly how long everything takes to happen. I mean, I think that's one of the one of the things that that I think novelists do, and and kind of prop historians, if you like, don't because they don't have to. 
And I think they really miss out on that. I think having to work out exactly how long things take to happen, how long it takes to get from one place to another, Mm -hmm. how long it takes a message to get from this town to that town so that this person knows that this other thing's happened. All that stuff's vitally important. And historians don't do that, I don't think. And so as a result, they're often a little bit misty about what's going on. Yeah, and I think sometimes it sort of, it it makes the world seem smaller in history Mm. books. You know, you don't really get that feeling of how big the world is, the fact that they just say, you know, so-and-so received a letter from the Pope and he said Mm. such and such a thing. And then his response was this. And you think, well, yeah, but then if you look at it, like you say, it might take six weeks for the letter to get to him from the Pope. Exactly, exactly. And then eight weeks for it to get back or whatever, you know. Yes, in the meantime, nobody knows what the, what the popes have to say. I mean, there was uh, this is one of the um, things I was doing with um, the later ones of my Roman books, a particular book called Imperial Vengeance, um, was all about the, the death of Constantine's son, Crispus, and his wife, uh, Fausta. And this is all a bit of a historical mystery. Nobody really knows why these two people were either killed or executed or committed suicide. And one of the things I was trying to work out was exactly when they died and how long the news of their deaths would have taken to reach the Emperor Constantine, wherever he was at the time. And I managed yeah. to kind of put this together and figure out that they must have died within the space of about a week. And Constantine probably knew about their deaths before he told anybody else about it. It was really kind of, I don't know, it was really interesting, like bit of, I felt like a detective or something, you know, <laughs> uh, try, trying to sort of piece together this, this drama that had happened nearly 2,000 years ago. I was interested. We interviewed Simon Scarrow. Was that two yeah. weeks ago or two episodes ago now anyway? Um, I just wonder, were you a fan of his books? Because I think yours are quite similar, uh, but you don't copy the formula, obviously. You bring your own ideas and stuff to the table. But I would say yours are at least as good as his, but he obviously beat you to the punch by being published well before 2008. But you never mentioned him in the other ones. I just was curious if you've if you've read them or... Yeah, I have. I mean, he was a bit of a, a kind of standout one because he, uh, I think I think his first book came out in sort of 2001 or two or something. Um, his first book, he told us, came out two weeks be- or something before Gladiator came yeah. out. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. That yeah. Must be good. Yeah. So he was just very, very lucky. Yeah, he was he on said. that crest of the wave, really. Right, right, yeah. I think I read, a, I read an interview with him somewhere where he said that initially um, nobody wanted to publish him because they said that nobody would be interested in books about Roman soldiers and they tried to yeah. get him to rewrite it as a detective novel. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I've read quite a few of his um, and really enjoyed them. I mean, I think the the early ones I enjoyed more. I think uh, after a yeah. while, he has a sort of formula. And I think, I mean, I don't know how he can write that many books about the same characters in basically the same era. He's on like book 22 or something now. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, he really sort of, he, I think he set up uh, the genre, which everybody else ended up. Exactly. I mean, it's not really a genre. It's a sort of it's a formula, maybe, or a, a parameters of writing stories, or something like that. But I think his, um, I mean, he was tremendously successful back in the early two thousands, and I think everybody that started publishing the books in, in two thousand and eight kind of uh, do, does owe a sort of debt to him, really. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I was originally thinking back in the early two thousands of writing um, a, a Roman, a series of Roman novels that was set at the end of the the Roman Republic. That was what initially grabbed my attention and it was going to be about this uh this roman soldier who kind of rises through the ranks and gets kind of close to caesar and mark antony and all this sort of thing and fights through the gallic wars and the civil wars and ends up at the battle of actium um and i'd planned all this thing out and i was kind of almost on the verge of writing it and then that um hbo uh, rome series came along which basically just does that but does more of it much better i thought <laughs> yeah. oh okay so i can't do that then yeah <laughs> and it's, and it's and fantastic i mean i love that but really that was i mean that that idea was what eventually became the twilight of empire books 
um, what happened is I went away and uh, I lived in Sicily for a year um, teaching English is one of the things I was doing to support myself while I was being rejected by publishers. Um, so I spent a year living in Catania on the east coast of, of uh, Sicily and there's a place near there called Piazza Armarina, which is a, a Roman villa from the fourth century. And uh, you can go there and you can see these fantastic floor mosaics that are really, really sort of lifelike scenes of everyday life and there's soldiers and there's hunters and there's people going to the bath and all kinds of stuff. And I was really just struck by how vivid this, this late Roman scene looked, not at all like the way that we imagine, you know, the earlier Roman world. And that kind of caught in my mind. And when I came back to England again, I started um, just researching the late Roman Empire. And I realized that in this figure of Constantine, I could have a figure who was very similar to uh, the way that I had Julius Caesar operating in this idea yeah. I had of these, of these late Republican novels. Yeah. I just yeah. updated it. I took that that idea and I shifted it forward uh, 400 years or whatever it is. And I ended up with the, with the Twilight Vampire novels. So it's kind of interesting in a way that this is exactly what I've done with these these medieval novels. Yeah. I've taken the same it's thing. It's interesting. When, when you were talking about it before, about Constantine and um, mm. de Montfort, I was thinking, oh, it's also like Julius Caesar. I almost said, you know, yeah. you've got these characters yeah. like mm -hmm. Julius Caesar, and I suppose later on in history, you've got Napoleon and these big, powerful exactly. military leaders that push things along. And, yeah, uh, and, and they're very, very controversial figures as well. I mean, um, uh, Simon de Montfort is... is one of the the most controversial figures in in medieval history certainly i mean this um on the one hand tremendously ambitious tremendously charismatic greatly driven but on the other hand you know a, a overly pious religious puritan um and terrible anti-semite one of the first things he did on coming to england and taking up his uh, his manor at leicester was to expel the jewish community um luckily the the neighboring manor was uh ruled by a woman called Margaret de Quincy, who was the Countess of Winchester, and she just gave them, allowed them all to stay in her place. And uh, she got this um, rather, rather snotty letter from uh, this guy called Robert Grosstest, who at the time was the deacon of Leicester, sort of telling her off for allowing these terrible Jews to live in her, in her, her manor and giving them the opportunity to, um, to oppress Christians with their usury. Uh, which is, uh, we don't actually have the letter that she she wrote in response, but uh, she's one of the very few people in medieval history who any, ever did anything good for the Jews. So, you know, Margaret de Quincy gets a big thumbs up. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, Simon de Montfort, um, terrible man in many ways, you know, very, very tricky. And yet at the same time, obviously really charismatic, obviously really influential. And lots of the people at the time, a lot of these young knights and young barons who were, um, wanting something different. They wanted reform, they wanted change, and they just flocked to him. Uh, again, like Caesar, like Constantine, like these other, um, these big male figures throughout history who are fascinating and dangerous. And that's the attraction of them, I think. You know, you, you kind of, you want to see what they're going to do next, but you don't want to get too close to them. Um, and in Simon de Montfort's case, uh, that's particularly uh, apposite, I think, bearing in mind what happened to him. Uh, <laughs> he did not come to a good end. But uh, yeah, I mean, in fictional terms, it's fantastic because you've got these, these enormous characters and they're kind of, um, they're like sort of larger than life uh, figures. And they exert this tremendous gravitational pull, which just draws the story along. And you can edge your characters close to them and have them kind of observing them, meeting them glancing away again, doing something else, coming back again, constantly kind of drawn along by this, this fascination of these ambitious, uh, tremendously destructive people. Um, so yeah, it's the, it's the, the fascination of, of terrible men, I suppose, in a way. <laughs> It's interesting. I was just thinking it's similar to some of the the, the king figures in in my 
Benicia Chronicles, you know, mm. sort of Bayer Brand is, is close to them as kind of getting, you know, he's always in the sort of the shadow of these different king figures and they're always causing, you know, they end up in in sticky places and uh, cause all sorts of mayhem along the way. And we don't mm. know anything about them, really, though, those figures that I write about because it's so long ago. So there's very little written about them. So I can sort of. Yeah, but make you know, it up, the, but, you know um, the, um, the the kind of the, the pattern for, for those people, because, you know, we see them around us in the world today. You know, this Yeah, is, and you've... exactly. And I think of them as 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 just like like all of these characters. I mean, like sometimes like Al Capone, you know, sometimes mm. like um, Donald Trump, sometimes like Caesar. I mean, they're, they're sure, all these yeah. sort of bigger, larger than life characters, you know, yeah yeah and this is why i think it's 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 important that we um treat them in a very particular way in in fiction i think it would be quite easy to write a novel that that really uh makes simon de montfort for example out to be a great hero um or perhaps that goes the other way and, and makes him out to be this this sort of like real demonic figure but i think you have to treat them very with great care because on the one hand you have to understand how it is that people followed them, how it is that people believed in them and in some cases gave their lives for them, while at the same time being able to keep a critical distance from them and to say, these mm. people are actually terrible. You know, these these men are just forcing themselves on the whole world around them and they're causing yeah. this, I mean, in the case of Simon de Montfort, basically his arrogance and pride led to a civil war which killed hundreds of people. Yeah, I mean, it's a terrible, terrible arrogance and mm. egotism, isn't it? I mean, Absolutely. this sort of yeah. egocentric... Yeah craziness really which you know if we're going to talk about, i mentioned donald trump i mean let's not we don't need to go into that but <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah these sort of characters like you say i mean they are obviously mm. so incredibly obsessed with themselves and yes, their own yes. importance but moving moving on from the from okay, politics yeah, though, yeah. that's just I'll draw, <laughs> yeah, that's my, that's my mistake. Uh, right okay uh, well let's mention him again we'll get more views or listens mm. we'll get we'll get cancelled by someone um so you've got this trilogy that you're writing the battle mm. song and and these other books so what would you say the second title was second one's called leopard's malice that's my my current title um this is uh, change that well they might do um this is the the lord edward who is uh the son of of henry the third was uh, referred to as the as the leopard in this thing called the song of lewis which is where i get the the title for the first yeah i i reckon i reckon your publishers would change it because they'll say it will sound more too much like a wilbur smith novel set in africa or something they won't like anthony Ritchie's has got a book with leopard in the title Uh, i don't remember what it is but it definitely it definitely has leopards but anyway yeah Leopards aside, mm. once you finish this trilogy, which it sounds like you're well on your way to finishing writing, so you've yeah. got one mm. more to go. Mm. Um, what's the plan after that? Well, my plan after that is is to pick up what I was kind of in the midst of doing before I, I suddenly switched over to the Middle Ages, um, which my original intention after finishing the Twilight of Empire books was to kind of jump forward in time about 100 years and write um, a series of novels about the, the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. Um, so this is the kind of really the last generation or two of of the Western Roman Empire. And it would focus on uh, real figures who are right at the at the center of, of that. So I've got about sort of four different characters, um, all of whom are, are genuine people who are the, the sort of the big movers and shakers of the day. And my idea is to just show this process of a huge political structure kind of in free fall and these characters trapped inside it thinking that they can change everything, thinking that they can, you know, stop the collapse. But of course, we know that they can't, but they don't know that. And this has always been one of the, the great attractions for me is to, is to write about people who are kind of stuck in the middle of history and they don't know what's going to happen next. They don't know what the outcome is going to be. So uh, this is my, my, my next idea following the medieval one 
Um, I've done quite a bit of work on it already, actually. Um, so hopefully I can pick that one up and, and either Hodder will want it or somebody else will want it. Um, and uh, my idea for that is to write probably three or, or four books going right the way through from uh, the sack of Rome in 408 to the, the final kind of, I mean, you know, some people will say that the, the Western Roman Empire didn't really fall, but I mean, something definitely happened. So it's it's the, the extinction of central political control in about 480. So it's quite a long spread. There's a lot of characters, tremendous amounts of research, tremendous amounts of uh, traveling to this place and that place. Um, so I'm I'm really looking forward to that. But I'm I'm having to kind of stop myself from thinking about it at the moment because I still have to keep my mind on the 13th century. So have you have you started writing this? Because I saw your post on Facebook. Mm, yeah, yeah. You hadn't published I, I, yeah. a book in four years, and That's it right. seems like you've still been incredibly busy. Yeah, well, I have been. I mean, I've in in those four years, I've I've written three other novels. Um, so there's most of the first book of the of the fall of Rome one is called The Last of Rome. I've done a kind of rough draft of it, but it was just getting so big. Let me just, mm. so I don't, I hate button in here, but yeah, as, from a writer's perspective, you seem to be jumping around here. So are you really multitasking? Because I don't know, yeah. I can only really concentrate on one thing at a time. Yeah, I think, I think the thing was, I was, I was dead set on doing this and I was, um, working on this on this first book and well what really happened was the pandemic came along um because i realized that this book was going to involve a lot of traveling i needed to go to italy and i needed to go to barcelona and istanbul and it was going to involve a lot of research a lot of going to libraries and distant places and suddenly i couldn't go anywhere and i thought okay this i, I need to change tack here i need to have a bit of a kind of a change of scene and a refresher and that was the point in in 2020 when i decided to uh Okay, put that idea aside for a while, right. come back to it in a few years, and in the meantime, just switch period completely and work on these uh, these medieval books instead, which I'm very glad I did. But uh, yeah, that's the it, it's still there as as a um, a work in progress, really. Okay. So you said it was getting too big. I mean, how how big did it get? Well, I mean, probably not big by by the standards of of sort of fantasy um, novels or something. That which tend to be pretty big, but it was it was over six hundred pages and and growing, which I mean most of mine are about four hundred pages. So unless this was just the first volume, so I thought I'm going to have to try and sell this to somebody. Yes, <laughs> so you know, um, bearing in mind that the kind of the deeply risk averse nature of, of publishers at the moment, <laughs> I'm not really kind of setting myself up for, for success here. So I'm <laughs> I'm hoping I'm hoping that will change anyway, and I'm hoping that um, with uh, these books, hopefully, the battle song and its successors um, will hopefully do quite well, and um, somebody will be willing to to take a chance on an absolutely enormous uh, series of books about the fall of the Roman Empire. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully, I hope hopefully so. they sell loads, and uh, a, a publisher will take you on. But I mean, I don't know. It, it amazes me that you, you struggle to find a publisher, considering how good your books are. Um, yeah, well, it's it's I don't know. It doesn't get any easier, really, does it? Um, I mean, as we were saying before, I'm sure it does for some people, but uh, you know, it's it's always an uphill battle. Um, but I, I just had a very good grounding in that, so I'm kind of accustomed to it. Um, I mean, I, I just sort of think I spent uh, you know 12 years desperately wanting to be a writer, and that was the only thing I wanted to do, the only job I've ever really wanted to have. And I have had for the last sort of 10 years, the opportunity to live that life and to be a professional novelist, to do nothing else but just write novels 
and amuse myself with research and spend whole days finding out how to, you know, tie shoes in the 13th century or some ridiculous <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and, and people read my work and they write to me and they say how much they've enjoyed it. And that is just absolutely the best thing ever. And I feel so incredibly lucky to be doing that. Yeah. Um, and I, I just really feel like, okay, I mean, if it all comes to an end, if, if you know, the AI learns to, to write novels better than we can, um, then, well, that's a shame. But at least I had a really good crack at it, you know? Have you heard your novels on Audible, Ian? Um, uh, that's what I've been listening to. I, I started listening to one of them, and I, I actually couldn't bear to. I mean, the guy reads it really well. Um, he, he reads it with this tremendous uh, kind of dramatic voice, and he does all the all the dialogue and stuff like that. But I just, I absolutely creased up. Um, I just couldn't. I thought, oh my god, did I write that? Did I write that? that? Yeah, did somebody yeah. say that in my book? I, I, I couldn't do it. I don't remember his name, but I'm sure it's a guy that does uh, David yes, Campbell uh, books. Martin. Jonathan Campbell, I think. Keeble, um, Keeble, Jonathan yeah, Keeble. Keeble. Yeah, Keeble. Yes, yes. Oh, he's I a great. Him, another yeah, I've heard him do other things. I, I heard him read. Um, I think it was a non-fiction book. Uh, and yeah, he's done loads. Really good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how they have time to read all of these books and to do such a good job. <laughs> well, he's done a good job of yours, and I would definitely recommend them to anyone. That's else fantastic, yeah. Looking for yeah, they've book. got. Um, I, they were just. I heard from my publisher. They got uh, a person to do the the audiobook of Battle Song. It's a different uh, guy. I don't remember his name, but um, they gave me a little clip of his stuff, and he sounds pretty good as well. Yeah. So um, hopefully there'll be yeah the the audio versions of that will be out around the same time as the, as the print publication. I should think. Nice. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. I think we, we probably should have made this a, a regular question, actually, but do you own any weapons or armour, Ian? Because a lot of his... Fic- <laughs> See, you're laughing away there. A lot of yeah, authors yeah. like us collect stuff. I mean, Matthew likes his big helmet um, mm. he's got in the background. He's I like always, polishing my helmet. He's always polishing away. And I've got some swords and a big massive shield and stuff like that. You must have something, eh? I actually don't. I wish I did. Um, I've, I've occasionally thought of, of getting something. Was it at one point when I was uh, writing the Twilight of Empire books, I was going to commission one of these, uh, you know, there's a kind of Eastern European armorers who, who make this fantastic um, replica equipment. And I wanted to commission uh, a Roman helmet, particularly a Berkusova type two helmet, which is one of the ones that appears on the front cover of War at the Edge of the World, the yeah. original. Uh, version and I wanted to, to somebody to get me one of these so I could just stick it on the table and slip it. But I thought I'm just going to want to put it on. I'm going to want to put it on. I'm going to want to walk around the room. It's going to get embarrassing. Somebody's going to see me doing it. I, I, don't, I don't want to end up in, in that in that scene. You know? um, so I don't have any armor. I don't have any any weapons. Um, yeah, I'm afraid I'm I'm just surrounded by uh, by books and uh, pot plants and uh, bits of bits of random art. <laughs> It's a random art. Moving on. Um, right. So the next question, I'm guessing, um, mm. I know part of the answer, but so you've got no, no no weapons. So the next question was, have you done any combat or martial arts um, stuff? Because you mm. obviously um, write a lot of battle and action scenes and mm. they're very believable and very good. Um, so, yeah, have you got any experience or, or do you just make it all up? Or have I, you I haven't, no. Um, it's all from my imagination. My only uh, experience of anything like that is is uh, I was briefly briefly confronted with a, a police baton charge at one point in the late, uh, late 80s, early 90s, I think, um, where everybody else in the street started to run away. And I rather stupidly thought I could just remain standing in the street as a neutral observer and mm. <laughs> realized very quickly that this simply wasn't going to happen. So that's really been my only uh, my only encounter with uh, with what, what one might call sort of you know, large scale violence. Did they hurt you? 
No, no, I, I well, fled. All right. <laughs> you fled. <laughs> I fled at great speed down Brixton Hill and then stood outside a, a, a convenience shop drinking a can of lilt, watching some anarchists building a barricade and setting it on fire. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so uh, that was that was quite exciting. Uh, you know, I misspent youth. Um, but no, I mean, all of all of the uh, the action scenes in my books are entirely imaginary. And I think I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm glad that there are people who do combat reenactments and stuff like that and who get all the the absolutely authentic armor and equipment and they test it out and stuff like that um so that i don't have to really so i can read what they have to say about it um because i mean i don't think i'm very much like a like a medieval knight or a roman soldier or anything like that so i don't know what my attempts to to replicate that would be i don't think they'd be that much of a of a, an authentic uh gauge to to what it might have been like and also because the kind of fighting that i'm writing about particularly in battle song is so unusual um this is it's largely mounted combat mass mounted combat by armored men smashing into each other um because this is what you know the 13th century the mid 13th century is the real high point of this mass mounted warfare um because knights who were doing it they trained in the tournaments and the tournaments at that point weren't sort of you know nice uh, jousting matches. They were full-scale melees with hundreds or even thousands of men charging at high speed towards each other with lances, smashing their lances to pieces, and then getting involved in this kind of, it's like mounted wrestling. And there's a lot of descriptions of it, luckily. I mean, there's very few descriptions of what it was like to be in a battle, but there's a lot of descriptions of what it was like to be in a tournament and in a melee, because people loved to write about it, and they loved mm. Heralds love to write about it. And the, the knights that were involved, if they made a big name for themselves, they like to kind of sing their own praises. So we have lots of these fantastic descriptions of the experience of this melee warfare, um, which are just extraordinary. Some of them are, are, are really amazing and very kind of visceral, very brutal. It was all about kind of grabbing your opponent, grappling them, uh, grabbing their reins out of their hand, trying to pull them off their horse and throw them on the ground, punching them in the face. Uh, there's a fantastic bit of... Um, Something by I think it's Ralph de Howden or something who was writing about the sons of Henry the Henry the Second, Richard the Lionheart and, and his brothers were very keen on tournament fighting. And he said something like, "Until you've seen your blood flow and heard the teeth break in your mouth uh, under the blows of your opponent, you cannot hope to aspire to knighthood." You know, it's that kind of thing. It's this incredibly. You know, we tend to think of the world of chivalry as being rather decorous and and sort of all about pageantry, but this was really full on brutal stuff. And I think, I, you know, there's nothing that I could really do, at least safely, that would give me any experience of what that was like. I mean, I yeah, I didn't yeah. briefly ride a horse at school um, for this army, but um, in, in, in a, something they had called learning for living, I think in, in the, the 1980s uh, state school curriculum had this thing called learning for living, where I don't know what kind of living they were trying to uh, set me up for, but they sent me off to a local stable and, and I got to sort of ride around on a horse. So I can actually ride a horse in theory. Um, but I mean, anything of the kind of thing that I'm describing in these books would be far beyond me. And I'd have to find uh, about a hundred other people who are willing to do the same kind of thing. So, so yeah, I mean, in short, it's all imagination. <laughs> well, it absolutely feels yeah, very real. So obviously all of your yeah. research has paid off. And um, and in this later in Battle Song, you know, it sounds like I'm thinking people listening are going to think it's all about fighting. There's a lot of the a lot of it is about the relationships between the different people. There are female characters and there's a lot it's very it's a very rich cast of characters, actually. And you touch upon the the, the whole situation with the anti-Semitic, you know, mm. stuff that's going on and the Jews and and so it's 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 really it feels very broad 
you know it, it covers a lot of, of of topics as well as having this sort of thrust of the action s- scenes and and stuff going through but it's brilliant really good yeah good thank you i mean that's that's really what i was interested in in exploring with this i mean i often kind of think like the the story that i'm writing about is just an excuse really to to go into a whole <laughs> load of other stuff about what was going on at the time and you know what people were eating and drinking and, and you know what they were talking <laughs> about what women were doing and you know what were the sort of all the little smaller stories going on at the time i mean the stuff about the the jewish uh community is is something that we can't really get into because it's too big but i mean you can't really avoid that when you're thinking about the second baron's war and simon de montfort because it was just one of the main drivers behind what happened um and the kind of violence that the jewish community was subjected to at that point is is just astonishing and you read the the original sources the original descriptions and it's just it's kind of awful i mean it's Anyone who thinks that, that you know medieval England was a was a terrifically tolerant place, welcoming of diversity, is is just going to really have their eyes opened when they they encounter any of that material, because the levels of of popular hostility and hatred directed towards the Jews in England was was just a, appalling. But I mean, the other yeah. thing is again is what I'm trying to get into in the book is that you have all these accounts of people being tremendously intolerant towards uh, towards Jewish communities. But at the same time, there are these laws saying things like, oh, you know, Christians and Jews aren't allowed to eat together. They're not allowed to have sex. Sex between a Christian and Jew is like a form of bestiality. This is the law of Henry III, which implies that they were actually doing that because obviously yes. there's no, yeah. no law against something that isn't happening, right? So we do know that behind the scenes, behind this kind of facade of, of hatred and terrible legislation, things were a lot different. People were actually interacting. And that's one of the things I wanted to show in the book, um, mm. show this, this sort of... Uh, actually very genuine close relationship between uh in this case Robert de Dunstanville a Christian knight and his friend a Jewish moneylender and that uh that man's sister um yeah. so yeah yeah there's all these different things this is the thing with each each of these three books I wanted to explore different kind of aspects of the of the medieval scene which sounds kind of very academic and, and a bit dull but I was hoping to do it in an interesting way so the first book I've got the tournaments and the the situation with with the Jewish community. The second book is really all about kind of knighthood and what it means to be a knight and the obligations of knighthood, military and social. Um, and this third book that I'm starting at the moment is more about kind of outlaws, really outlaws and mm. castles. Nice. No, it's 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 yeah. really good. It's really great, and um, rec- thoroughly recommend Battle Song um, to anyone listening, and to everyone really. So. Um, we, we've come to the end of um, the the main bulk of the questions because um, we could talk forever, um, but we probably couldn't put out a podcast that lasts forever. Um, maybe we could, I don't know, but um, today is not that day. So we we arrive at our regular um, our regular questions that we ask all of our guests, um, and so today is no exception. Firstly, what have you been reading um, and watching in the last week or so? Uh, well, reading. Um... I, I'm not reading too much fiction at the moment because I'm starting on a new book, so I'm mostly doing sort of background research, although I did just read a book by Annie Garthwaite called Cecily, which is about Cecily Neville, the mother of Edward the, ooh, now what is it, Edward the Sixth and Richard the Third. Um, it's Wars the Roses anyway, and it's uh, it's very good, seen through the eyes of this of this very ambitious woman, a real person, and against the sort of the backdrop of history. So that, that was really good. But um the most interesting nonfiction book I've read lately is a book. Actually, I wondered, Stephen, whether you'd come across this. Uh, it's called Medieval Outlaws by a guy called Thomas Olgren. And it's mm. a 
compendium is translations of original outlaw stories from the Middle Ages. So it's got Robin Hood's in there, Hero with the Wakes in there. Um, uh, but then there's these other kind of much more unusual figures. There's a guy called Eustace the Monk. Um, the other guy calls Adam Bell. And his well, yeah, he's on, he's on some of yeah, my yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so yeah, you've probably come across some of this stuff already. I mean, these yeah. stories are fantastic. And they're not... They're not told in a kind of dramatic way, but they're just so packed with action and weird stuff going on. These people, <laughs> the weird they're, they're stuff constantly so yeah, very. They're yeah. constantly disguising themselves. All of these outlaws are obsessed with disguising <laughs> themselves, which makes me wonder whether people in that time had a, a, a difficulty in distinguishing people. <laughs> if they, yeah, if it's they about weird. Somehow, yeah. Yeah, Especially if it's like a giant, like Little John, exactly. who's like supposed yes, to be seven yeah, foot yeah, tall yeah. and they disguise themselves yeah. as a woman or something. Yeah, well, you've got this uh, this guy used as the monk, who's the strange one, who wasn't a, a real person who fought in the first Baron's War as a pirate, weirdly enough. Um, and he, um, it starts off, and it's, uh, the story starts as, yeah, used as the monk was uh, was one of the worst of monks. The first thing he did was went to Spain and learned necromancy. Thinking, well, that's pretty bad. So then he comes back and goes into uh, goes into his monastery, and he uses his nec necromancy to make all the other monks fart during prayers. Which seems a bit of a waste of time, you know, if you're going to go. Uh, well, it's a good laugh. Well, I suppose so, yeah. But anyway, so then he goes off and becomes a, becomes an outlaw and gathers his outlaw gang together. He spends most of his time disguising himself as things and playing pranks on people. So he disguised himself at one point as a prostitute and has what must be a, one of the most eyebrow-raising uh, anecdotes from medieval history, which I won't go into because I believe this is a family podcast. <laughs> it's it's really, really guess. good. And, yeah, well, quite. And the, um, the last story, Adam Bell, which I know you, you said you'd come across, Stephen. I mean, that's that's great. I mean, he's he's basically, he's a kind of Robin Hood type outlaw, but he's up yep. in Inglewood near Carlisle. And it's just action from beginning to end. There's one point where one of his friends is uh, captured and they're going to hang him on the gibbet in the centre of Carlisle. So Adam Bell and his mate, Klim of the Clough and some other guy, yeah. uh, disguise themselves, of course, and get into Carlisle and attack the, the gibbet and rescue him off this gibbet and then have this massive fight against the entire population of Carlisle, where they basically end up killing most of them and making their escape. And the king hears about this. And of course, rather as they always do in these outlaw tales, the, the, rather than the king saying, this is terrible, somebody must deal with these outlaws, they say, that's amazing. I love this guy. Let's let's give him a job. <laughs> so <laughs> so they, they, he employs him as his kind of royal archer or something. But I mean, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic book. And it's really, I don't know, it, it really exposes you know, we're all writing this, these historical novels uh, for people in the present day, but you read the original stuff and you realize that actually people at the time were hearing these stories as well. Yeah, they loved people stories. The time yeah. Were, yeah, they were enjoying these yeah. kind of slightly larger than life, far-fetched people, uh, stories of people kind of jumping out of windows and, and kind of being chased on horseback. Yeah, Adam <laughs> so Bell was actually, um, he was uh, the star of one of the Robin of Sherwood episodes. How was he? Yeah. Okay. yeah, there's a whole episode yeah. around him, and from the sounds mm. of it, it sounds his episode sounds like what you've just described there. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting how much of a crossover there is between the the traditional Robin Hood stories and, and these yeah. other kind of figures. That yeah, were they took a lot the of stuff. From yeah, it. yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and I know that you know you will have read a lot of stuff for your Wolfshead book that you yeah. were, you're writing, which I think you were you were probably right setting it in the early 14th century. Actually, I think that's where these stories seem to fit the best. You know, at the time of the kind of the, the forest laws and these kind of things, and and uh, just that whole that whole setting with Edward II and stuff. So anyway, so that was that was my my that was uh, your... big read, big read. Well, for the the uh, last, what, what, last, what about what about watching? Have you watched anything? Oh, watching, oh sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm one of those really annoying people who um, can't watch uh, anything sort of historical without getting incredibly pedantic and fussy and saying things like, "Why has that person got pockets?" 
in the 14th century and why <laughs> you know they're wearing completely the wrong type of shoes or that weapon would never well that so most of the time i avoid um watching historical stuff because you know i, I just get too annoyed um and it annoys everybody else around me as well but what i have been watching lately is um my girlfriend got me uh the the dvd box set of 1970s i claudius you ever oh. see any of that? That the old I've not one. seen it. But Simon Scarrow mentioned this as well. Ah, yeah. really? Really? Well, this I've is some, watching something them, inspired yeah. him. Uh, I remember watching it years ago, but mm. I was really small. Yeah, I think a lot of people have kind of seen seen bits of it. Mm. Um, I mean, it's, it takes a bit of getting used to it because it's the 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 quality of it is terrible. The film quality is awful. All the sets look like they're made of plywood. They're kind of vibrating when everyone's moving around. Yeah, and they're sort of booming actors uh, with terrible sound quality. But once you get into it, it's fantastic. I mean, the 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 portrayal of of these larger than life Roman characters, great. So it's got Brian Blessed is Augustus. Um, well, this is why the scene, amazing. the settings are uh, moving around because his voice would yeah, well, go over. Yes, yes. But he's got. I mean, uh, Brian Blessed's amazing actor, and he can do this thing where he he just turns instantly from this kind of slightly buffoonish kind of uh, sort of warm uh, silliness to absolutely ice cold menace in the blink of an eye yeah. and he, he can just do this and it's really actually quite chilling to watch and it's it's amazingly acted um but i mean actually I was, I was watching and i was thinking i bet boris johnson bases himself on <laughs> brian blessed's portrayal of augustus so i thought johnson's probably old enough to have watched that when he was a kid right so oh, yeah, he must yeah. have sat there watching it in the johnson household thinking ah this is the kind of guy i want to be <laughs> Yeah. If you see it, it's really you know it's it's really quite a bit uh, of that and a bit of, a bit of the other famous Roman uh, sitcom at the time, the yeah. Up Pompeii. Oh yeah, so yeah. That, that'd be Boris yeah. Johnson. We'd yeah. be watching Brian Blessed and then a Frankie <laughs> Howard, and there yeah. you go. Yeah, put the two together. Yeah, put the two together, and there you go, Boris Johnson. <laughs> yeah. Well, with the last question, then. So, what have you been listening to, and do you listen to music when you write? Ah, uh, well, um. Lately, I have mostly been listening to uh, the the theme song for this podcast um, because I, I listened to <laughs> I've listened to a few of them and it's very very catchy. Thanks very much. <laughs> I, I found myself it's like an earworm. I found myself going around kind of with your voices revolving. In my head. <laughs> it's mostly Matthew's voice. Oh, is it? Is it? Okay. Yeah, you I can, can tell barely hear me at the end. You were, whether both of you were singing along. Just as the last is... scream. Mm -hmm. He's he's in there somewhere, but he's he's, he's playing all the guitars one. and everything. So. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really good. I mean, I I um I don't listen to that much music nowadays, which I wish I did because I I used to. I mean, I used to be in a band, brief a very terrible band, um, and I was a, a kind of rock guitarist. This is back in my distant youth. Um, so it's something that I miss, and every now and again, I think I really ought to just you know spend spend a week just listening to rock music. Um, but most of the time I don't because I'm either reading or I'm writing or I'm talking to someone, and I don't have. Uh, space to listen to music but in terms of listening to it when I, when I write I do sometimes um, listen to it in preparation for writing if I've got a particularly difficult scene or a scene with a lot of action or a scene that's going to involve kind of a lot of concentration uh, there was one I think it was in my fifth Roman book Imperial Vengeance where I, I was writing a, a naval battle scene the battle of the Hellespont and I couldn't work out how to do this because it was really hard to do. There was all of these ships on one side, hundreds of ships on the other. There was interesting tides and winds and all this kind of thing. And I wanted it to be very sort of vivid and immersive. So I just sat down and listened to, um, I think it was Holst's uh, Mars. Do you know what? Over I, and over and over again. I knew you were going to say that before Did you said you? I don't know why. It was almost as if I was psychic there. I could picture Weird. it. I knew Weird. that you were going yeah. to say that. 
Yeah, well, I, I did. I, I just and I had it on repeat, and I must have listened to it about six times. And then I just sat down and wrote the whole scene, like the whole. It was about a chapter and a half, just in one go. Um, and uh, it just flowed out me. And other times, what I've done is actually listen to music on headphones while I'm writing longhand, because um, I find that uh, writing longhand, because my handwriting's so bad these days, I can't really read what I've written. So I just <laughs> sit there. The music sort of erases all my other kind of thoughts and all yep. my desires to go yep. back and change things. And it's a really good way of just breaking through any moments where I feel sort of like, uh, you know, there's bits where you're kind of slightly oppressed by what you're going to write. And you think, oh, how am I going to do this? How am I going to have this scene working? Just sit down, massively loud music on headphones, writing longhand. It doesn't feel like you're committing yourself to it. It feels like you're making notes. But then you go back again afterwards. And if you can distinguish what you've written, Usually there's, you know, page after page after page of quite decent stuff and you can, you've can you got something to work with then. So uh, yeah. so I do that. In those cases, I, I just listen to, I usually film soundtrack music. I think the, the most recent one I was, uh, uh, I think Basil Polydorus, is that how you pronounce his name? The, the guy yeah, who did yeah. the Conan the Barbarian theme. Oh, yeah. Yeah. brilliant. Yeah. The Conan the Barbarian I mean, music. I listened to that quite a lot, actually. In the last it's fantastic. It's, it's, I've listened it's to so, that uh, so overblown, but weirdly brilliant. Dum, 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 one of them, dum, yeah, exactly. Dum, dum, one of them sounds so much like chill, uh, uh, Christmas music. It's got kind of jingly it's, bells in it. <laughs> and there's bits of it that sound very much like Holst um, yeah. as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's, all, it's all on the same, the same spectrum. Same spectrum yeah. of uh, huge bombastic music. <laughs> so that's yeah, brilliant. that's the kind of stuff I use to to just sort of drown out all of my misgivings and, that, and just get on with things. And that brings us full circle because um, that Conan the Barbarian movie was, of course, directed by John Milius, mm -hmm. who did the Rome series on HBO. Oh so, right, yes, full circle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There you go. Fantastic. And so. Thank you very much for coming on Rock Paper Swords. It's been fantastic to have you on, and um, you've been a brilliant guest. So thank you very thanks much. Thanks very much. Yeah. yeah, thanks for the opportunity. It's been great. That's it for today's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please take a moment to leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on, and don't forget to subscribe. Let us know if you have any questions or things you would like us to cover in future episodes. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash rockpaperswordspodcast and Twitter at rock underscore swords. And you can find out more about our books on matthewharfey.com and stephenamackay.com. The theme music is written and performed and copyrighted by us. Until next time on Rock Paper Swords, it's goodbye from me, Matthew Harfey. That's goodbye from me, Stephen A. Mackay. And remember, whatever action and adventure you have going on in your life, be kind. Stay safe. And happy reading. <laughs>